Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 194. Here's a Boo Crew fright fact. In 2018's Netflix series, you and season two were introduced to love played by Victoria Pedretti. Victoria has played a twin in two Netflix shows and both times her twin brother was a drug addict. The other show was The Haunting of Hill House. This time around, we are talking to the stars of a series we are absolutely in love with. M. Night Shyamalan and Tony Bascalop's Servant, now back for season two exclusively on Apple TV Plus now. You're joined by the immensely gifted Lauren Ambrose, Nell Tiger Free, and Rupert Grint. If you have not yet experienced Servant, we can all wholeheartedly recommend it as one of the greatest horror stories ever told using this platform, and it does use every aspect of this platform to build an immersive quality and attention to detail that is intoxicating. Learn why you will likely fall into its arms like we have. They'll take you on a journey through the unbelievable sets, the magic of working with M. Night, and what he brings to their process. Go into their shared love of the horror genre as storytelling, that amazing mural in Leanne's room, and so much more. Episode 194 starts now. Here's the thing. You're at the grown-up table now. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for... Ah! Horror Homework. So excited about the episode today. It was so incredible to be able to speak with Rupert Nell and Lauren Ambrose. Servant is such an amazing show, right? Oh my gosh. I'm so hooked. It's insane. Oh, it's fantastic, man. It sucked me in right from the first episode. It's kind of like a nail biter. I mean, it's like every episode ends on some kind of a cliffhanger where you're kind of like, what's going to happen next? You know, so you can't look away. You're not going to want to stop. You're going to want to watch the next episode. You know, if you've not caught up with season one yet, but. We're now at what season two, right? Episodes, few episodes have, have gone by already, and we're in the thick of it. It's just another nail biter. It's just like, what's going on? And there's some dark elements of horror here and there, and then comedy sprinkled in here and there, some funny, lighthearted moments, but it's gripping. It just pulls you in, and it's just like, you just want to keep watching. I'm going to be honest. Like, I. I've never heard of this show up until recently. Right, yeah, because it debuted a few years ago, right? Didn't it de- yeah. debut near the tail end of 2019, early part of 2020, right? Yeah, and I remember seeing like, I was seeing the title and hearing M. Night's involvement and then this new show was out. And for some reason, I don't know if maybe it was the platform that confused me at the time because it wasn't Netflix and it wasn't Hulu. It was this new platform, Apple TV+. And I didn't even know that Apple TV Plus existed until Servant. And now I'm on there and I'm like, wait, there's some other really cool shows on there. So like, I didn't even know that that was an option. And Leo told me, which I did not know that like, if you buy a new iPhone or something, you get it for free. Is it a year or something? Yeah, you get a year. Yeah. And I think it's an iPad too, because Mm -hmm. one of our kids, Santa brought them an iPad. That's already broken, by the way. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you believe it no comment it's like a month old okay, it's already okay, okay. fucked up guess leo <laughs> guess 
whose iPad is broken? <laughs> Out of all our kids, which one's it going to be? I want to go with a with boy. Yeah. Yep. The older one. Yep. Yeah, Everett. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> oh, geez. Yes. It is already broken, but don't you worry. I have Apple Care. Santa, yeah. Santa provided some Apple Care for us. Um, Santa will fix your screen for ninety nine dollars. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Anyways, before his iPad broke, it said like he was able to get a year free. So it's hard for us, Trevor and I, to really commit to a TV series. Yeah. Like, it so it's got to be something be that hooks really, us, right? Yeah. Right, right. Or we will drop off so fast. We've yeah. done it many times. Yeah, yeah it's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. but it. It really has to have high standards. And this one really does like it. Like Leo said, it just it brings you in from the first episode and you're like, what is going on? And I'm constantly thinking of like theories, like maybe it's this. And then I'm like, wait, and then I go back and figure out like, oh, in season one, that was something different. And so that can't be it. But what if it's this? And that yeah, really started like a dialogue. You're on all these social media accounts where people are continuously talking about their theories as to what's going on. Yeah, it's really yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting to see what other people think. And then I'm like, oh, maybe. And then you'll see some people like try to like debunk it and be like, no, that that can't happen because X, Y and Z. It's just like you kind of feel like a detective. Yeah, it re- you yeah. really do. Yeah. And each chapter is only th- like 30 minutes long, but it's packed with yes. so much of this rich world building that it's like a sensory candy shop. There's so much going on in such a small amount of time. And can we talk about yeah. the food? You will <laughs> notice the food in this show. If you haven't seen it, oh my gosh, bring snacks. Yeah, one, you, one of the main characters is a chef. He makes things that I've never seen and that I never thought about eating, but all of a sudden they sound delicious. Bring lots of snacks. I always want crackers <laughs> and old cheddar. Yeah, After seeing it. And wine. And wine. Mm-hmm. Oh, wine. Yep. Yeah. Wine's a big deal <laughs> in this too. It's got this mystique to it, not only in the sense of what's going on and wondering what exactly everything means, but the way it's delivered is not traditional in the sense of how other streaming platforms are delivering their content. You have to wait each week for another piece of the puzzle. So that kind yep. of builds that anticipation and excitement and that wonder that we haven't really gotten a chance to experience in a long time. Well, given... Yeah. Okay, both of you, I'm going to ask. If you had the option to get the full series right now or wait and stretch it out and savor your experience, what would you do? Savor or just like get it all at one time? Tough question because I actually want to just binge it. Just, just get it over with because I really want to know what's going on. But there's a lot of other good shows going on that are doing the same thing. So it gives me something to look forward to every Friday. I'm like, okay, watch 30 minutes of this, 30 minutes of that. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'll savor it. If I had the access to it, I'd binge it all because it's it's hard not to keep going, especially when they're little 30 minute chunks. It's easy to just go, all right, it's 2 a.m. Ah, what's another 30 minutes? I can get yeah. to the end of the story and find out what's going on. But what I do enjoy is that because it's so staggered, this shit's not getting spoiled. Every time you go to social yeah. media and you find out everybody's everyone's been talking about it for a month or whatever, and then it right. sours it, right? Like I like, right. I like that people don't know what's going on. I do like getting it in bits and pieces because you have like a full week to reflect on it and 
try to figure out where the next episode's going to go. And we know that the series has been renewed for season three already. And this is great news because originally M. Night was going to go forward with a 60 episode arc. But since the pandemic, he recently revealed he decided that he can tell this entire story in 40 episodes. So he knows beginning to end exactly everything that's going on. And part of the reason is because he says he's become so involved in the creation of the show that he's literally sitting there inserting sound effects now. Wow. Like he's his hands on. So it makes it easier for him to be a part of it when he's got kind of more limitations. Wait, so there's going to be 40 episodes? 40 episodes is his goal. So that would need to be one more season after season three. I think he's going to get it. I, I think hope he does. Him. I would yeah. just die if they just chopped it at the end oh, of God. season three. So everybody got to watch it, right? You got to go watch right, it. Yeah, right. so we can get a season four. <laughs> oh, please, please. And I just turned this little tidbit. You guys would love this. Did you guys know that two of his daughters are involved in the show? No. I did not. Get this. One of his daughters, uh, Ishana Knight, is Shyamalan, is... She made her de- directorial debut. She directed one of the episodes, or maybe more than one. Aww. And yeah, so so she and get this, she was in diapers when Unbreakable came out. Hmm. <laughs> That's How cool. Crazy. So How now, cool that must be. For now she's, yeah, now she's working on set. I think the other sister, I can't recall her name at the moment. I think she might be in one of the episodes. I'm not sure. Wow. But yeah, he's got he's got his family in it. So that, that, how cool is that? That's really cool. I just want this pandemic to be over with because the first place I want to do, uh, go is to Philadelphia to to the sets. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go fun. to the sets. I got to see the set, which you'll yeah. hear all about in the next right. little while here. First, we're going to go around the room and around the World Wide Web, all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown. <laughs> To each highlight a horror <laughs> flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth the revisit, starting with our good friend Leo. What are you assigning this week, my man? Have you guys seen a little movie called, from 2019, Mercy Black? Why does that sound familiar? I don't think we've seen it, but I know we've come across it. <laughs> it's one of those that I did not see when it first came out, but I kind of caught some interest on it because it was just kind of like it sounds like something I, I i i heard about before but i wasn't sure so i'm like yeah i want to see it and i forgot about it but now i found it on netflix so mercy black directed by owen egerton and also written by him it stars daniela pineda as marina hess the lead character l lamont as alice hess and janine garofalo as dr ed award let's see if this sounds familiar 15 years after stabbing a classmate to conjure an imaginary phantom known as Mercy Black, Marina Hess is coming home. She's being released from a psychiatric care to live with her sister and young nephew. But in the years since her crime, the myth of Mercy Black has gone viral, inspiring internet rumors, stories, and even copycat crimes. Marina is haunted by what she has done and the phantom she imagined. Interesting. So, yeah, it sounds like shades of the real life Slenderman case. That's right. And that's why this movie caught my attention back then. But I just completely like forgot about it. I'm like, oh, I got to watch this someday. So, yeah, this movie kicks off with uh, a little prologue showing the two young girls, uh, Marina and Rebecca, luring a young girl into the woods to torture and murder her for Mercy Black. You know, next we see Marina Hess as a young adult some 15 years later, you know, after spending that time in a psychiatric hospital, you know, with her doctor played by Janine Garofalo where she tells her, you're now, you've now been rehabilitated and you will be released, which comes to her shock and surprise because she thought she was going to be there for a lifetime. She gets released and goes to live with her sister, 
and their young nine-year-old son in a rural small town. But soon enough, her sister's jackass boyfriend (laughs) starts to prod at her about the famous Mercy Black killings that she was a part of, and that starts to steer up some like bad memories and, and visions. But that's not all. This is where the movie takes off. So the movie is a slow burn with some frightening elements and jump scares here and there. Some of the scenes you see with the young girls are definitely reminiscent of the real-life Slenderman, like you said, the, you know, the Slenderman case from the Waukesha, Wisconsin. If you're interested in that real-life case, I highly recommend the HBO documentary Beware the Slenderman. That will shock you to death as to what these girls did. But in the meantime, you can catch Mercy Black. It's currently playing on Netflix. Lauren and I checked out Dark Star Pictures' Welcome to Dark Star Virtual Film Fest over the weekend, and there was a surprise screening of a remarkable new film that Dark Star and Bloody D are teaming up to bring you. It's called Dementia Part 2. It's written and directed by Mike Teston and Matt Mercer, who also stars as someone with the last name Miska in this film. Potential <laughs> yeah. shout outs to someone yeah. we know. <laughs> so Mike Teston has directed and written short films and features of his own, but he's also an accomplished cinematographer. He's behind films like Joe Begas's Bliss and VFW. And Matt Mercer nice. has written and directed many projects as well and is a prolific actor. So originally, this movie was created as a challenge during Cinepocalypse 2017 by the programmer saying they wanted to see if they could make a midnight movie in one month from concept to world premiere. That's crazy. So Mike and Matt came up with this insane sequel to Mike Teston's Dementia One made in 2015. And that was starring Christina Klebe and Gene Jones, who was father in Ty West Sacrament, which is an amazing movie if you haven't seen it. The yes. setup for Dementia 2 is an ex-con takes a job as a handyman and ends up in the house of a woman with dementia, which is really sad. Dementia is very, very sad. And in this film, yeah. very, very scary. Very, very scary. Uh, this film is shot completely in black and white, which I loved. And it was just about over an hour or so. So it gets that special award. The Sweet Scream Award. (laughs) Yes. uh, Because it did not drag on for a really long time. That's like host territory, right? Yeah. Just just kissing an hour? Man, I love that. I'm just going to give it another one. Yes. And everything you love about Edgar Wright, Sam Raimi, and Peter Jackson all rolled into one. It is so disgusting at times I find myself curling into a ball on the couch. Suzanne Voss, who plays the woman with dementia, is so great. She's been in a bunch of stuff from going back to Howard the Duck. She was in Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem. And in this film, she's pretty much playing like a deadite. The effects were out of control. They were done by Russell Effects from right here in Burbank. It's run by a husband and wife team of John and Sierra Russell, who met while working at Studio ADI, manufacturers of aliens and all that amazing stuff they're legendary russell effects have gone on to do vfw and bliss a big joe Begas connection here they did the rituals southbound and so much more so that's what you're getting and i love how it's shot in black and white all the gore is like dark ink it looks like nightmare black when they're spitting this stuff out of their mouth there it's everywhere it's really good and it's really funny 
Yeah, it's hilarious. Like, I can't believe how quickly they put this film together because it's so good. And they did it so fast. It's just like pretty mind blowing. Again, going back to the special effects, be able to throw that together like that in such a short amount of time with such a limited budget. It's pretty mind blowing. So you'll be able to see Dementia 2 later this spring with Darkstar and BD. They're planning a theatrical release, followed by a VOD and digital and DVD early summer. Ooh. So put it on your calendar. Okay. And then also put on your calendar that one of my favorite movies, Freaky. You can buy it digitally today. Oh, nice. Guess who pre-ordered it? Digitally? Me. Can you pre-order something digitally now? Yeah. What does that mean? How do you pre-order something that's... go to the iTunes and you hit pre-order. But why would you... What's the benefit of pre-ordering something digitally? Because I'm hoping like any second it's just going to show up. I can't Oh, so you get it before... I don't Midnight know if you or whatever. Really do, but it's just exciting. Just Leo, do you go know? With it. Can you pre-order something digital? Don't you pre-order <laughs> physical media so that it comes on day of release? No, but you can do both. What really? if you forget? Yeah, yeah you, you could do. I mean, it just. I think what I, it just does like an automatic download or something, you know. So like, yeah, w- when you get it, it just pops up and says, "Hey, your movie's here. Watch it now," you know. And you're like, "Whoa, cool," you know. It's so, like curbside pickup for like yes. digital movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm gonna right. say. But then I also feel like I have to buy the DVD because I like the physical media. So that's called support. That is definitely some support. Lauren's already ordered it. Like we've already watched the theatrical one where you get for like 20 bucks or whatever. Is it 20 or 12? It's, it was 20. It was, was it 20? It was 19.99. We've watched it like three times. I know that. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, you know see, what? See, the thing is, like, uh, the thing is, I don't own Blu-rays at all. Like, I don't have a Blu-ray player. Like, I don't have DVDs at all, you know? But what I love about, like, iTunes Plus, when you buy a movie, mm-hmm. is you get the extras that are on the DVD. Mm. So you can watch all those, like, making of, behind the scenes and all that. So, like, I don't need the, I don't need the actual Blu-ray, but the cool thing is I still have access to that if I get that version, you know? And typically, you do get that version if you, if you order it. Gotcha. Yeah, I was wondering if there's going to be different things on the Yeah, because the Blu-ray has special features. I was stoked to yes. see those. So, but yeah. those are also on the one that I pre-ordered on iTunes? Yes. It's kind of weird to access because there's a tiny little button that says iTunes Plus or something you got to click on. Mm. And it downloads like a menu that, that tells you like, watch behind the scenes or making of or commentary, you know, so it's all there. That's exciting. Yeah. I know I know what I'm doing yeah. at midnight. I guess I know what I'm doing, too. <laughs> That's right. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! This is the Boo Crew Podcast. My name is Leanne Grayson, and I come from Wisconsin. I hope that you will consider me. Do you have him? Who? Oh. As a responsible and moral guardian for your son. They've taken Jericho. Leanne Grayson has been missing for five days. Leanne, if you're watching, please come home. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. We love a good story. As a species, humanity craves it. It's what binds us together. It defines us. Among many things, they mark significant events, offer explanation and meditation on the inexplicable as a stress reliever to give us meaning and serve as a warning. Truly great storytelling is magical. 
Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, an actor who has that rare ability to throw herself into the craft of storytelling so much so that she vanishes into roles seamlessly, immersing us into the reality she creates, leaving us breathless. Her first feature film role was in Frank Oz's Oscar-nominated In-N-Out, the Emmy-winning Law & Order, and was imbued into pop culture with her unforgettable performance in Can't Hardly Wait. There was iconography like Party of Five and the phenomenal Psycho Beach Party. In 2001, a show came along called Six Feet Under that quickly became regarded as one of the greatest television shows of all time. Her contribution was an integral part in helping it win nine Emmys, multiple Golden Globes, and many more awards and critical acclaim. Her incredible career has led her to everything from the X-Files to a Saturn for her work in Torchwood to the stages of Broadway, where she earned a Tony nomination for My Fair Lady and was named Outer Critics Circle Outstanding Actress in a Musical. Her latest project is an enchanting thriller produced by M. Night Shyamalan and Tony Bascalop for Apple TV+. It has just kicked off its second season and follows a couple who hire a mysterious nanny for their baby son, Jericho, who turns out to be an incredibly lifelike doll. Our guest brings to life Dorothy Turner and does so in a way that's so mesmerizing and masterful that it awakens something indescribable. The entire cast and everything involved is ripe with so much purpose and intent that it gives that feeling of constant wonder of being at the cusp of a magic trick. It's why everyone is talking about Servant and one of its stars, the amazing Lauren Ambrose, who we are honored to welcome to the show. Woo! Yes! Wow, thank you so much. Gosh, I went into sort of a trance there listening to you talk about my career. I was like, Jesus. I was like, I was, you were saying so. I was like, I was in that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a very incredible career it has been and continues to be. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And congratulations on season two of this incredibly addictive, spellbinding adventure. Servant is such a great example of using genre, be it horror or thriller based narrative in this case, to hold a mirror to massive ideas, including marriage and love and faith and a very visceral way that is unique to the genre. What are those films where you first noticed the power of horror? Oh, boy. The Exorcist, obviously. That's going to be probably the top. I just showed my kid The Shining, which was exciting that he was maybe, maybe perhaps old enough to watch that. I'm not sure. He had a deep desire to watch it. And uh, so we let him watch it. So I just revisited that one the other night. And uh, I just can't believe that that movie. I can't believe the, uh, the expertise. I mean, we're really being held in the hand of a of a master there. I feel like no, nothing is unintentional. And uh, that's, that's kind of what I like about this show. I mean, I've never been in a thriller before. I've never been in a horror movie or anything. I don't think. And so I was excited to get the script and see this, read this character and perhaps have the opportunity to, to learn about the genre and learn about the, the kind of storytelling that night does. Speaking of Knight, I mean, when it comes to genre storytelling, he's got a very special and unique way of tapping into our emotions. In almost all of Mm -hmm. his movies, there's a euphoria that accompanies it. Perhaps it's in a twist Mm -hmm. reveal or maybe in the details that have been there for us in minutia the entire time that we perceived as insignificant, but later on pays off. So what was the first time you experienced an M. Night Shyamalan film and how did it make you feel? Yeah, the, uh, to my favorite's The Sixth Sense. It's uh, just so good. 
you know, in this time of quarantine and uh, film club with my with my son, that's that's that was another one that we showed him because he's really interested in this in this genre and in being scared and that those feelings. I guess that makes sense for a teenage boy. I thought that was such a beautiful movie, and I thought, wow, this isn't really a horror movie at all or a thriller at all. When I revisited it, I hadn't seen it since it came out. It's really this beautiful exploration of the denial of death. And that's really what that story is about. And, and it reminded me so much of what we're up to on our show is this denying grieving, not the, just absolutely refusing to grieve this couple. But yeah, Sixth Sense, Tony Collette's performance in that is uh, just so, so beautiful, extraordinary. Tell us where you were when you first got word that you got this once in a lifetime opportunity to play a character as complex as Dorothy. And what did that initial work look like to find her? Um. Yeah, I got the script and I read it and I thought it was really interesting and and I worked with Knight on it a little bit. And, and then he hired me to do it. And I remember him calling me up and saying, I really want you to be the, the lady in this show. And, and I was like, wow, okay, here we go. I'm going to try to do it because it, it the, the character on the page, you know, it's just like, she is believes the doll is her baby. And she goes into these sort of catatonic trances. And, and what does that mean? You know, it doesn't, I didn't know what that would look like or feel like I didn't know yet. So, so it was a little bit of a feeling of a risk and a leap of faith of like, okay, I'm going to try my best here and uh, try to make sense of, of all of this the trauma that this woman has been through and, and how it's presenting. Yeah. But I felt like I was in pretty good hands because Knight was in charge and he's so good at what he does. So yeah. The Boo Crew will be right back. In 1999, The Exorcist was voted the scariest movie of all time. Your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Entertainment Weekly calls it the most viscerally harrowing movie ever made. That thing upstairs isn't my daughter. The most electrifying movie of the 20th century is now coming back to theaters. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Author William Peter Blatty and director William Friedkin have created an expanded, thrilling new version of The Exorcist with footage that has never been seen before. She needs a priest. (laughs) Don't miss The Exorcist in the version you've never seen. Possessing theaters everywhere. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. (laughs) 
This might seem like a stupid question because I'm not an actor, but I was wondering, like, much like a baseball player might, like, tap a home plate with the bat or maybe make a few swings to kind of get into the mindset <laughs> of the game. Is there anything you do before you get set to put kind of put you in the game for Dorothy? Is maybe, like, is there a piece of clothing in her wardrobe or a line you might repeat? Anything like that specific to getting into that character for I you? To eat, kinda... like, it, I can't remember there was some baseball player that had to eat, like, three chickens or something before every game. You know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't wow. know who that was, but I know. I got to eat a couple of chickens and <laughs> spin around and adjust my gloves like Nomar. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> do I have, I mean, gosh, maybe I do. I'll let you think about that. For Dorothy, you know, for Dorothy, I actually for a lot of characters, but especially Dorothy, uh, the costumes that Caroline Duncan has created and Knight is really good about surrounding him. So I think part of his greatness is that he surrounds himself with uh, really talented, extraordinarily talented and creative people. And Caroline Duncan is the costume designer on our show. And she's just done such a beautiful job. And I feel like her work has informed this character for me so much from, you know, just all of the, very luxe uh, silk pajamas and um, in this sort of world of privilege and luxury that this character is you know, wrapped in. So, yeah, I guess putting those clothes on is a, I try to really be mindful about doing that when I'm putting on the costume that I'm really putting this character on. That's a big help to kind of put the clothes on and go, Oh, okay. Now I know. Now I know what I'm doing. It's a blast to watch you not only play Dorothy, but to play with Dorothy. It's exhilarating to watch your decisions and how she talks or might use subtle facial expressions or the way she raises her voice to expose kind of those cracks in her veneer, like a porcelain doll loaded with gunpowder. It's this anxious state you put us in for the duration of each episode where we have those stakes of God, when she learns the truth, when she, like Natalie says, you know, wakes up, all bets are off. We see flashes of what that might look like. And like around episode nine of of season one, how do you know just how much to pull back to create that very tangible tension for us? I I don't know. I I absolutely don't know. I, I just trust the people I'm working with and I trust the other actors to, you know, I put my focus on them in the scene as, and I trust the director, you know, I, we often, you know, especially you talked about episode nine, that was really such a fun episode to shoot, even though, you know, maybe that sounds weird because that was so, it's so devastating and you find out what happened and you find out the, the origin of this trauma, but because Knight works in this methodical way and he directed that episode, there's so much freedom within his framework. He has this very strict framework of, you know, storyboarding every, every shot. You can go in his office and see the whole episode on the wall. But, and I thought, Oh, even when I first got this job, I was like, Oh, that's strange. You know, I've never really worked in them. I guess there's not a lot for me to do, but it turns out there is (laughs) quite a lot for me to do within that sturdy framework. And it's actually pretty comforting to have that to work within and um, yeah. And then to trust the trust that the director is going to choose good takes and uh, you know, maybe give a, a range of things or a range of ideas or that kind of thing. Yeah. But no, I, I don't think it's any, 
very specific calibrating on my part. I don't think that would be my job. I think that's somebody else's job. Got it. No, very well. Very well said. <laughs> yeah, your character Dorothy is always on the go mentally and verbally as she continues to unravel from all her trauma. But she's also funny, and as are your co-stars like Rupert and Toby. Totally. How did you prepare for such a uh, constant whirlwind of emotions while shooting each episode? <laughs> yeah, I th- I, like you said, I, I think the uh, I think that's such a great element of this show. You've got these, you know, privileged white people wrapped in their their crazy world and their trauma and and they can't look at their trauma and they're you know won't grieve and all of this stuff and and to sort of undercut that is this wicked writing uh this this wicked streak of dark comedy to offset that and um yeah i think some some of those moments really are our best moments and uh i i think it's so so much fun to see rupert I mean, he's so funny in the show. He's so funny. Yes. And Sean, I don't know. Does Sean get to be funny in the show? I'm trying to remember. I mean, I feel like I'm always in some kind of terrible moment with that character. Um, But he, the actor, Toby Kebbell, is a hilarious human being and um, should be in (laughs) comedies. If anybody out there listening has any control over that, put that guy in something funny because he's a hilarious dude. But yeah, super psyched for Rupert that he gets to be this wild character and he plays it so beautifully. He can be so brash and awful and materialistic and, and nasty and full of vices and then and then so funny. And also in, in the scenes we have together where there I feel like we're always we're always finding the sort of softness of the brother sister relationship. And and that's also kind of a cool thing to see and I love movies like um, You Can Count on Me and movies about brothers and sisters. So, so it's fun to find the moments of softness in that relationship. Those two dudes. <laughs> <laughs> so I read that the first Reborn doll that was supplied to the production was too realistic and it had to be altered in some way so that viewers wouldn't think that it was a real baby. Did you ever see that original version of the doll? No, I, I don't know this story. I, I, I never heard of that. I, I mean, that thing is mad real looking, though. I'll tell you what. That is. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I remember when they first sort of click, click, like open the box, open it, it comes in its little special coffin case or whatever, and, it, and uh, pulled this silicone humanoid out and it handed it to me. We were doing these camera tests they were just sort of, you know, putting us in different costumes and different lighting and with the prop, with the baby. Shocking, shocking thing, this this uh, reborn doll. So it's also a work of art. I mean, it's like every little eyelash has been laid on and every little vein and fingernail has been painted perfectly. And um, wow. it's, it's, I think it also costs a fortune. So it's like the prop people are always in a panic about the thing because it's, it's this incredibly valuable, irreplaceable prop. It also has two heads, which is kind of a nice Oh, really? Fact. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think I'm, I'm thinking that it's eyes closed and eyes open heads. Wow. I Maybe was going to ask if there were two separate dolls, but that makes sense that they would just switch the heads, right? Yeah. I'm trying to think there might, there may be two dolls. It's, you know, again, it's so fragile and the, the hair is 
so odd and but it's really very beautiful it's really and it's like the, the world's greatest prop <laughs> yeah if you're gonna you're gonna get into the into the moment of thinking it's real we're actually surrounded with reborn dolls at our house we have an 11 year old daughter who is obsessed with re with collecting reborn dolls funnily enough my and god yeah so when we saw it at the show we we're like it's a reborn doll yeah. we're talking about reborn dolls <laughs> it's our life yeah it's our lives wow <laughs> wow you are the second person because also rupert if you ask him about it he, he's like oh yeah we have one like somebody sent him one. one oh wow before this show like before this show <laughs> right he already knew what one was yeah wow that's like he so had it he had one in his life i don't know what he's ever done so take us through the, a little bit about this amazing set that is the Turner's house, which is very much a character in itself. And since it almost takes place entirely inside of it with such a small group of characters, the rooms have become iconic and we kind of feel like we live there with you guys. What is the construct of that place? How much of it is movie magic, so to speak? So, yeah, it's, it's really one of the most incredible sets I've ever seen and been on. It's uh, this historical brownstone from in Philly, from downtown Philly, and they recreated it on a soundstage meticulously. I mean, every detail and also technically every detail was thought of every wall can be moved every you know, there's all this cooking and chefing that goes on on the show. Uh, you know, everything's practical, all the stoves, all the sinks, all the, you know, the plumbing, the, the, it rains in there. It's a, a wild set to be on. And to, again, to have that framework to within we do where we do our play is uh, pretty great. It's a feat of uh, set design. This may be just a geeky, nerdy question. Is it all on one floor or does it actually have practical levels? Because, you know, many are used in the, in the course of the, the show. Yeah, there's stairways and platforms, but for the most part, it's on one level. But, and there's all kinds of elaborate trickery that we do to have people going up the stairs and sometimes having conversations from two levels, which yeah. is tricky to shoot. We often see that street. Is that an actual street or that's a set? Uh, both. That's a street in Philly that we do some uh, location exteriors. But also there's a street on inside. Wow. There's a street. And then the across the street, there's a, a row of brownstones and trees and cement and cars and things. So it's it's an elaborate situation. That which is, is so pretty cool. pretty great you know it's pretty it's a, and a testament to to night and to apple to you know give the creative people a lot of leeway to to do their work and and do it well and have a lot of opportunities to to you know i mean on the other hand it's just one set like that's that's where we are and it's part of why we were able to to shoot in during this quarantine you know we have a small set a uh, small cast small set and uh we we all lived and worked in a bubble for half of the season or season two. That was a pretty extraordinary feat. Yeah, the show is heavy on atmosphere and mostly takes place in a confined place, which at times feels like a haunted house. Um, but then mm -hmm. we start to see within the haunted, this, this is haunted house, this residence of yours, we start to see the color red sprinkled throughout the episodes, something we've seen other M. Night Shyamalan movies. 
I was curious, what is your interpretation of the use of red? And are there other fun Easter eggs that you're aware of that we should be looking for while watching season two? As you say that, I'll be honest with you, I'm not really aware of the use of the the color red. When do we use it? (laughs) It shows up in the foreground, usually like it's not Mm. a a lipstick, perhaps, or a wine glass, or I believe it's the coffee maker, I believe. There's different like props set throughout the yeah, series. The ki- thought, the wow, kitchen, the ki- the, yeah, and the kitchen table, the kitchen table surface is red. Well, I think, you know, it's also so dark uh, the, that we, we shoot, they shoot the show so dark and sort of moody and mysterious. And, and then when you get that bright, warm color, it probably shows through. I, that's definitely more of a, a question for, for night about palette and uh, his use of the color red. I didn't even know that. I'm glad to, to hear that that's a, an M. Night Shyamalan ticket. <laughs> that's something he does. So I didn't, I didn't yeah. know about that. I mean, obviously. <laughs> it goes back to, uh, I believe it's the sixth sense the first time that, you know, it's noticeable. Yeah. So you'll, you'll see in the sixth sense, things like the doorknob or the color of the roses on the table, you know, so very fascinating. I do remember it in the sixth sense. I'll be, I'll be hyper aware of it when we go back to work. Um, <laughs> picking it apart and saying, aha, I see what you're doing here. And they'll say, they'll say, what? What are you talking about? It's just a glass of wine. Where are you putting wine. that red thing? I know. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's also the right. mysteries of what is the coldest room in the house, Leanne's room, and that insane mural. What is the vibe like in that room? Because as viewers, it feels absolutely evil when the camera's in there and we're looking at this mural, is there any vibe, you know, you going into that room? Yeah. Well, it's on its own uh, set. It's on its own weird stage, like out in the netherworld, that particular sort of Leanne suite. So when we do head over there, it's kind of, it has its own feeling. And yes, the mural, I think in season two, the mural is used and exploited a little more. We get to explore its symbolism. Very <laughs> fascinating. No, no, I don't know what to say. I, mean, I feel like everything I say is a potential spoiler. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to say about this show. Honestly, like you open the script and word one, it's like spoiler. So, right, right. And that said, that said, that's one of the great things about the show is that it's best to go in having those secrets kind of creepily and slowly revealed as as the show goes on. And I wanted to ask you, we have uh, time for one more question. As far as the mechanics of the delivery of this show, it's very unique in that we only really get to have one episode at a time going into season two and we kind of have that thrill of the discovery of marinating on it and waiting for the next one what do you think that empowers in the story ah oh the 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 old school waiting for each episode to come out on friday kind of thing yeah yeah exactly um well i don't know but as you said that i sign off wholeheartedly on the delivery system i think that's a great choice for this show maybe just in, in the old fashionedness of it and in however this might be a um, like it has so many classical elements and classical archetypes. So I think to harken back to, you know, having to wait is a cool choice for this show. <laughs> it definitely heightens the mystique, which is just a lost, a lost element these days, which is really refreshing. Yeah. 
Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We so appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Hey, and we absolutely love the show. So this is a real honor for us. Thanks for all the the thoughtful ideas about the show and and your uh, support. Super grateful. Thanks again. we'll We'll see you at the Emmys. Yeah, that's right. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> the presence is an infection and it's spreading. I want to see her get what she deserves. We are running out of time. You died to be with him. And his mother. I don't know why I keep doing bad things. I can feel the dark thing in me getting bigger. This is too far. I hope that you will consider me as a responsible and moral guardian for your son. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two phenomenally talented actors. She first appeared in 2012's 10-time award-winning Broken and Declan Lowney's Mr. Stink. An incredible run on the Golden Globe-winning Game of Thrones as Princess Marcella, then Ed Brubaker and Nicholas Reffin's Too Old to Die Young in 2019. His screen debut came in 2001 in the role of Ron Weasley, a character he made iconic across all eight films in the Harry Potter series, one of the most successful franchises of all time. Stepping away from that, he's had an impressive list of film work, including Driving Lessons in 2006, 2009's Cherry Bomb, Moonwalkers, the TV series Sick Note with Lindsay Lohan and Nick Frost, Snatch, and so much more. He is a People's Choice and Young Artist Award winner. Together, they are a part of, let's be honest, one of the best horror TV series ever created, M. Night Shyamalan and Tony Bascalop's Servant, exclusively on Apple TV Plus, now back for a second season. We are deeply honored to welcome Nell Tiger Free and Rupert Grint. Wow. Yeah. Hey, My God, I want you to introduce me every time I walk into a room. <laughs> well, you guys, this show, as we were saying, is such a wonderful symphony of unsettling tension and horror. Yes. When did both of you first discover the charms of the horror genre as a viewer we can go with Nell first sure I was very young um I think the first scary thing I ever saw was it the original and I watched it on YouTube in like 145 different parts like part one part two part three and it scared me senseless and I was in love with horror ever since I mean it's still to this day one of my favorite films of all time and uh yeah, I'm a big horror buff. Ask anyone. Um, normally, that's the genre I try and make people watch. <laughs> so, uh, so it's really fun to be a part of a thriller series. It's great. Yeah, for me as well. I think it's a genre I've always kind of gravitated to from a really young age. I was always obsessed with those Goosebump books. And I've always been into Stephen King. And so many that a huge fan of Night as well. Night was a huge attraction for me to, to be a part of this. He's just, I think he's a master of this this kind of storytelling. and there's kind of no one like him. It's been great. We're going to try to avoid spoilers here for those of you who may not have discovered the show yet. This is a great time for you listening to catch up. It's like seriously our favorite show. Out of all the roles you've both had, what do these particular roles awaken in you that is uniquely delicious? 
Yeah, I mean, there's something really, really fun about playing the scary character in the scary show. I like knowing that I maybe am making people hide under their duvets and be scared of it. You know, it's actually a really, really fun idea for me. And um, yeah, this is this character so different to any character I've ever played before. And there are so many different colors and notes and tenors to her. And uh, I'm just really excited for everyone to see her keep evolving. And hopefully I do her justice and hopefully I freak you out a little bit. <laughs> for me, it's a very unique show, I think from anything I've ever done before, it's a very different world. It's a very small stage that we're playing in. It's this, this house, this one place, and we never leave it. And it's, yeah, there's something really interesting about that, kind of really getting to know every kind of wall of the place. And things kind of are amplified in, in this atmosphere. And it's a really interesting place to play a scene. And I think in this season, it kind of takes on a whole new life. We learn new things. There's new kind of rooms. It's kind of this labyrinth of the place. And it's kind of a character in its own. It's, it's a haunted house and it's thick with the, the kind of, the core of this story is tragedy and it's, and you can really feel it whenever you're on set. So it's, that's kind of one of my favorite kind of parts of the show. Now that the world of a uh, servant has been established, what kind of involvement did M Knight have in this next chapter? And what are some of the ways that you continue to experience his influence and guidance? Yeah, well, Knight's always a huge a huge part of the show. Um, if he's not directing an episode, he's, he's close by. He's, he's kind of always in the wings, kind of minding everything and taking care of that kind of every tiny little detail. He's a, he's a real details artist. And I think that's something that you can really see, see in the show. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love watching him work because the episode he directed was, I think he did four. Am I right? Yeah. And yeah, it's just, he's just got a very minimalist way of shooting. He'll only do kind of, a few setups on a scene. Sometimes I'll do it in kind of one shot. And yeah, it's just really interesting kind of seeing him. His brain is incredible because he's got kind of not just this season, but he's kind of thinking about how the story will kind of eventually kind of end and kind of every character's point of view, their past, their future kind of, he's got a lot going on and it's, it's incredible to see him kind of visualize that. It's become more uh, common for TV series to introduce new directors uh, to the family throughout um, the season. What are the creative ripples uh, effects that you experience from that trajectory? It's definitely interesting having lots of different people come to be the captain of the ship and kind of steer us into a, uh, into their vision and their direction whilst maintaining Knight's kind of vision and his tenor for the show. And obviously for the four of us, we're always there. You know, we stay there from episode one to episode 40 and we'll be there the whole time. So having different people come in and out and be at the helm, it can be a little bit creatively. Sometimes it can feel a little bit disruptive and a little bit like, whoa, we're used to working this way. And now all of a sudden we're working this way or at this pace with this person. You have to really very quickly acclimate to a different style of working. But it's also really fun and it's really great to see all these different perspectives. And we have such unique storytellers working on this show. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a luxury to be able to work with so many talented people, but it's definitely, uh, it can take a toll sometimes when you're having constant switches of who's at, at the helm of, of everything. Was much of the production done during lockdown and COVID or were you guys wrapped up by then? No, so we started beginning of the year, I think it was in February, we started pre-pandemic. We, shut, we got six episodes in and then obviously everything had to shut down. We went back to London. I had a baby. 
Congratulations. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Hopefully not a silicone one. <laughs> yeah. It's actually the worst show to be a part of when you just become a dad. I tell you that. But yeah, so then we're straight back in and yeah, under these new kind of necessary, but kind of quite tight restrictions. We kind of tested three times a day. Everyone's kind of separated in zones. We're all living in the same apartment building and yeah, it's a hard show to kind of socially distance. We're kind of locked in a house <laughs> um, and it's, it's an intimate space and it, it definitely there were some challenges there in kind of knowing how to kind of resume filming a show like Servant. But it was a, yeah, a great achievement that we managed to kind of complete it safely and it turned out okay, I guess. And Nell, was, was any of that real world isolation and the surrealness of what was going on, do you find that that eked his way into the performance aspect at all? I mean, you know, I think now everyone knows what it's like to be trapped in a house <laughs> for a ridiculous amount of time. It was just us, but uh, now you're all with us on that. So, I mean, yeah, going to work is a form of escapism. You know, it's escapism for the viewer, but it's also kind of a form of escapism for us because, you know, when I'm here and I'm in London, I'm just 21-year-old Nell who's really irritating her mom because I'm not doing the washing up and stuff and then all of a sudden I'm in Philadelphia and I'm living alone and I'm a grown-up and you know I'm back to work so pandemic or no pandemic it, it throws you either end of the spectrum in terms of performance yeah I think having that suffocation of being in isolation that was kind of a rhyme that rhymed a little bit um <laughs> it, it definitely bleeds out into the performance your surroundings always do and um yeah, so I think it helped with the uh, suffocating element of the show. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. We were such massive fans of the show. We wish we had an hour oh, with thank you guys. You so Seriously. Much. Thank you again <laughs> for taking the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 194. Special thanks to our guests, Lauren Ambrose, Nell Tiger Free, and Rupert Grint. Experience Servant exclusively on Apple TV Plus and a time of release. Stream Season 2 available now with a new episode every week. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shams and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shams, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shams. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.